Welcome to another episode of Alter Ego Podcast. I'm really, really happy to have Rich Bartlett and Natalia Lombardo uh, with us uh, all the way uh, from a small village in New Zealand. Can you just remind me of the name of the village? It's Paikakariki. Paikakariki. Great. I could not pronounce that first time. Uh, and I am uh, recording this podcast in Kalifi in Kenya, where there is an incessant crow in the background that I hope you can't hear. Um, today, uh, we're talking about uh, a series of articles that Rich has wrote, uh, the title of which is Courage Before Hope, Weaving Together Emotional and Economic Microsolidarity. Um, and that's quite a mouthful, but we'll be explaining what that is as a concept. Um, and Rich and Natty are on the call because they've been conspiring together and kind of co-developing these ideas in conversation, as often good ideas where they come from. And so it's a space for us to both uh, kind of unpack the ideas that are in the article um, and, uh, and share perspectives, I think, on what's a really exciting idea of how we can harness the power of small groups to change the world. So welcome to this little podcast. Thank you, Ronan. Um, just so you know, this, this place, Paikakariki, in the native language, it means the landing place of the green parrot. So we can just transpose that to be the crow and that, that'll explain the noise in the background. <laughs> but I'm in the landing place of the crow. <laughs> Very good. Um, yeah, thanks for having us here, Ronan. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really happy. Again. And I had, and just kind of just for some personal context, I had the pleasure of uh, meeting both of you in London and it was just really lovely to hang out and it's really nice to, to kind of continue this conversation and this uh, well, kind of a, a collaborative conversation, really. And just to, I, for me, I see this, yeah, this network kind of continually, continually forming uh, of people who are touching on ideas in this space and coming together. And I think a lot of people who are listening to this podcast are part of that conversation. So I'm really, um, you know, hopeful in how this idea will take shape from this conversation. Um, so, uh, without any further ado, maybe Rich, I would love if you could maybe just ex explain at a high level what uh, the series of articles that you've just um, that you've just wrote is about. This idea of uh, a structure for small groups to weave together emotional and economic micro solidarity. Sure, um, it's like ten thousand words or something. So I'm going to try and do the simplified version of that. Um, and, and the, the post, like in a sense kind of summarizes everything I've been thinking about and everything Nati and I've been talking about for our last two years of traveling, um, mostly in Europe, but also in other parts of the world, um, working with people who are, um, trying to do some, trying to do some good in the world. Um, and, and the post is, is trying to encapsulate, like, what is it, um, what is it that I'm going to do? What is it that we're going to do um, to help these people be more effective and, and to help, you know, bring about that more beautiful world our hearts know as possible? Um, the, the, the argument starts from this position of collapse. Like this is a baseline assumption um, that, that we are well underway um, 
into a collapse of our life support systems as a, well, first as a society, but also as a planet. Like that, that um, in the last 40 years, you know, like wild animal populations have um, diminished by 60%. And um, I, I consider humans to be animals too. So that means we're on that list and we're, we're threatened. You know, our, our habitat is, is threatened. Um, life is threatened. Hey, did that ping just come through on the? That's okay. Oh. You can keep going. Okay. I just switched off all the noises. Um. So the argument starts from this position of collapse that we're well underway in the, yeah, what is it? The sixth mass extinction. You know, like that. There's, there's in the last forty years, wild animal populations have diminished by sixty percent, and that human society is existentially threatened that we really have kind of um the biggest Im imaginable problem on our hands and therefore mm. that um when i decide what i'm going to do when i get up in the morning i want to uh, have confidence that my action is fit for purpose you know like i don't i don't really want to uh, work on something that feels meaningless or or um, that that feels like it's not contributing to the yeah a, a healthier more sustainable life so I kind of set myself this very high challenge right like we're we're well underway into a collapse and um, I want to act in a way that that averts that and not just not just that we avert the risk of collapse but actually that brings about this new much more thriving more equitable future so it's a it's kind of a big brief um, and then I think the, the other assumption, um, right there in the introduction is that, um, you know, obviously there's many different ways to describe, like if you, if, if it was useful to describe all of the, if to, to dissolve all the world's problems down into one problem, um, you ask different people and you'll get different answers for what that thing is. So some people will name like capitalism or patriarchy or these other, um, kind of systems that we recognize. And I think for me, well, for the for the argument at least, the the root of all evil, if you like, starts from this thing called individualism. This this way of treating people as if they are isolated atoms that are, um, yeah, somehow separate from all of the other people around them, and that this this individualism is kind of like a metaphysical virus that has infected many societies in the world and has been. Um, intensifying for many, many generations and that um, therefore when we try and work in collaboration, um, we're, <laughs> we're contaminated, you know, like we can, we can arrive and say, Hey, we're going to be a group. We're going to um, collaborate. We're going to share power. We're going to treat each other as equals and, and look after our relationships Like you can set your intention in that way. But the, uh, it's almost like our operating system is, um, has been trained for individualism and and you know um, what's his name Charles Eisenstein has the whole framing about when he, he sees that we're moving from an old story of separation which is my kind of individualism and then we're moving to a new story which is about interbeing or if, if you want to think of it as a like a um, a, a more engineering metaphor because that's my background it's like the difference between a computer and the internet so, so if you treat people 
as individuals, that's just a computer. It's just this isolated box that has some functionality. But if you treat them as a as a collective, as a multiplicity, then you have the internet. You have this like mass potential and creativity and emergence and and um, yeah, this huge capacity for doing stuff. So I want to be in a in a post individual society. You know, like in a in a, in a um, I want to live in a way that puts our relationships ahead of our individual identities. And um, the the next segment of the post then lays out a, a very informal theory of groups. And um, before we go on to that, Rich, I just yeah. uh, and and this is a question for both of you. You spent many years working in organizational design and in decentralized organizations. How does I suppose the dysfunctionality of individualism show up in a practical way that prevents groups with good intentions being effective and being nourishing places to be? Um, I think personally, there's a lot of different ways on how that shows up. I think mainly it's about, you know, like these assumptions that if you were raised in a system that is super hierarchical, like majority of us have, you come into a group with an expectation of um, someone is going to tell you what to do and how to do it, or you're going to be the one telling others how to do and what to do it. So learning the space for actually we're going to decide those things together, we're going to have a dialogue, we're going to hear each other's position and make um, the decision that is best for all of us or for the group or for the project. Um, that takes time and it's like it's, it's a skill that gets built. And more so, you have, it's, it's quite common, I think, in, in our generation at least, it's quite common to, to have this first, this first step where you go from the individual to the group. So, okay, mm. we're, no, we're no longer, we're not interested in working in this hierarchical fashion. We want to do things in a group and you go to consensus. And what happens is that the, often the individual will completely lose their identity in the group and mm. it's all about consensus and unanimity. Um, and and it's like the pendulum swings too far in the other direction, where where you lose your initiative and your your creativity and your freedom, um, and 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 it's 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 like yeah, you sacrifice something about your individual um, brilliance for the sake of the group. And and what we're reaching for is some balance between the two that you can hold the I and the we um, with with poise. You know that that you can have those in, in both hands and know when to bring one forward and, and when to retract hmm. um so so maybe in a moment we'll talk about what what's the kind of the optimal design for that uh for that creative synthesis between the individual and the group but you were you were about to share your theory of groups um and in the article you talk about this you have a categorization that goes from the self to a dyad a partnership to a crew to a congregation and a crowd. And I think that, um, yeah, I was just really impressed by the kind of the, the the level of detail in the thinking and almost there were like new maps to think about how groups come together. So I'd love maybe if you could share a little bit about each of those and, and if it is possible to hold that question about how we strike a balance between the individual and the group within that, that would be that would be really great. Sure. And if you could also make a note to, um, <laughs> we could talk about the limitations of theory as well, you know. 
Yeah, that'll be interesting. Do you want to start at the bottom yeah. of the scale? So, yeah, that what, what you explained is basically what we call, like, yeah, the fractals. So the idea that, um, at least our change theory, that a lot of the change starts with the self, or there's a big part, at least, that um, requires the self to learn to change, to learn new behaviors, to understand what's happening, you know, to self-reflect, to be aware of what's going on. And then we keep on practicing and learning those things when we are in partnership with at least one other person. And it's mm. in that space of being together that, that we start, yeah, actually embodying some of those behaviors and learning new ways of communicating and <clears throat> building a bunch of the emotional um, um, the emotional intelligence or the relational intelligence. And then those are the behaviors that we also take into a group. So when we move from two to three, four, six, or eight people, um, that's what Rich as well describes as a crew in the article. The mm. idea is that, you know, we're always working on all these layers from the self to the relationship to the group. But a bunch of those things need to happen at the same time. Um, do you want to talk on the higher? Yeah, well, I, I specifically called out some specific sizes. It's like an incomplete list of all the group sizes you can think of. But um, that the, the ones that I'm most interested in are the crew being, um, I think it, this is approximate, but it's kind of like up to about eight people. It's, it's as many people as you can put around one dinner table and that you can... Um, maintain shared context really, really easily. You can have one conversation. You can um, you can be coordinated and productive without really needing a great deal of um, formal structure. You know, like you can just, you can actually literally sit in a circle and talk things through and, um, and get organized and stay organized and, and have a, a shared picture of reality um, without needing a complex management system or governance or written agreements or anything like that. So it's a very, <clears throat> um, there's this kind of efficiency gain you get from, from staying small. Um, and then the next, the next size that I named is the congregation and the congregation, um, really, as far as I know, and for the, for the, you know, for the sake of this argument, it's somewhere beneath Dunbar's number and Dunbar's number is this idea from, from social psychology that there's only so many, um, given the brain that we have, there's only so many relationships we can track and it's somewhere between, you know, people have different theories on it, but it's somewhere between like one and 200 people. Maybe you can push it a bit more um, in some cultures, I'm not sure. But um, the point is with with that number of people, everyone can recognize everyone. So So most people can expect to at least feel familiar around all the other people and and it would be rare to have strangers. You might you might have a gathering with 200 people and if you spent maybe three days together, um, you would notice if someone new turned up, you know, like that, that people are not strangers. And that, um, again, is a kind of threshold of how much, because, because of the way our brains work, like how much context, shared context and coherence can you hold um, before you need to introduce a whole lot of formal structures. So beyond somewhere yeah one or two hundred people then i just said everything bigger than that number is a crowd because you can no longer rely on um, an easy kind of informal trusting relationship you need to 
um, create these quite complex structures of governance. Like you have rules and then, okay, well, how do we make rules? Well, you need a constitution for how you make your rules. And then you need some kind of um, judicial system for evaluating if the rules are being followed and making new ones. And um, you need some kind of uh, way of patrolling people's behaviors and and then making sure that the people who are patrolling, uh, you know, blah, 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 blah. it goes it goes on and on. You mess up, you get a lot of complexity really, really quickly. Um, and is there an assumption in that 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 is a bad thing? Um, it has strengths and weaknesses. So, so I think we need to be working with large groups of people to have um, sufficient influence to change the course of history, like to throw us off this suicidal, self-destructive course. Like we need to have a lot of lot of people coordinate their action together. Like we have to move many many coastal cities in the next couple of decades for instance like we need to coordinate people at scale um uh but there are severe limitations as soon as you go beyond dunbar's number um even simple things like how much energy it takes to update your rules so like when you have um five people or 50 people you can it takes a certain amount of energy to go like hey we wrote these rules We've been using them so far, and now we want to update them to be better and, and better suited based on what we've learned. Um, it's a lot easier to do that when you can all literally sit in one circle than when you have a few thousand people. That that just becomes really, really difficult. So your um, ability to learn as a collective um, is severely reduced. Mm. And so, yeah, the, the thrust of the argument is um, where do we recover from individualism? Well, it's in these... Um, wonderful partnerships and small crews primarily like it's it's in these really really small groups where we can spend lots and lots and lots of time in the we space that we uh start to understand how to be in a different way that's not all about me but it's about me in relation to you me in relation to us yeah because basically what what we have seen at times and and i think we see it as well replicated in bunch of the systems um, in society that we already have is that people go into the larger scale in looking for that um, change or thinking that oh yeah you know like I know how to I know how to be a good human I'm just we just need to change the system and that's it but still mm-hmm. internally or in their relationships or in their smaller groups they still don't know how to sit with each other and listen to each other uh, there's still like that missing link in the change and the transformation. Mm. And one one um, particular line from the article that I liked, uh, from where I'm standing, it looks like contemporary neoliberal urban Western society is mostly designed for selves and crowds. There's little space mm-hmm. for dyads and almost no room for crews and congregations. And it's your feeling that actually it's in the dyads and the crews and the congregations that we uh, are able to recover from this virus of kind of dysfunctional individualism. Yeah, and and um, that's an important part of our context. You know, like the the other part of our introduction is is that we come from a congregation that that feels um, reasonably solid. You know, so we're from this thing called Inspiral, and um, the, it fluctuates between one and three hundred people, and the the people yeah the, the people that are having the best time at Inspiral are the ones that are embedded in these really supportive productive crews, mm-hmm. and and um, 
with with 200 people who are self-organizing and creative and complex and doing a million different things it's really hard to isolate like what are the important ingredients that really really work um if you know if someone wanted to copy what we're doing where would they start um in a sense this proposal is attempting to answer that question like how do you um produce something a bit like in spiral and and i've said i think these important parts are that you have um yeah these two boundaries that you have the first boundary which is a congregation which is um a couple hundred people a medium trust like everyone can know everyone but you're not like super super intimate and then that second much higher trust threshold which is my crew my really tight bonded mutually supportive group and for for us inside in spiral that's um lumio so we're, apart from being part of this big network we're also part of lumio that is a um that is basically a social enterprise, worker-owned co-op, um, a small, small-ish team building uh, software for group collaboration. So for us, bunch of what we have learned and bunch of what we have experienced about being with others comes from that space of a tight crew for like five or six years building, um, building this um, company. Hmm. Yeah, and there was a there was a part in the article where you talked about the the impact that Lumio has had as a small crew. I don't know how many thousand of people have been using your your platform. Um, do you know? <laughs> uh, I don't know the number of my head. It's it's like um, I know there's a few thousand groups that rely on it as an integral part of their governance. Yeah. Because I think that some, some yeah, because something that are, what what I think that many people that I've spoken to about this article have gotten from it is that uh, is the power of small groups that work or crews that work really well together, um, but also how to think about think about them and coordinate them in the context of larger congregations, which is something that Inspiral does as a congregation. Well, I think the the thing I want to pull out is that the as far as I can tell, it seems that the way to build a good crew is um, to co-develop them in the company of other crews. Like that, um, mm. these things are really difficult, and and um, they can. It's really common for them to go badly, and and sometimes to go really badly. You know that you really get caught up in in the emotion of it, and you have a big crisis, and then your group falls to pieces, and it's really. Um, it's really hurtful, and then you and then you leave, and you're like, oh, I tried that thing, and I and I, and I got hurt, and it didn't work. I'm going to mm. go back to my normal job or whatever you're going to do. Um, mm. But because we have this this wider context around us um, of the congregation, it's like, yeah, sometimes sometimes the crew disintegrates, but you're still part of this, this um, bounded group. Mm. And as we've, as we've, um, as Lumio developed as a crew, as it got more stable and developed, like, yeah, you know, we started with a bunch of mostly activists who had very little experience uh, building software or running a business or anything. And we just had strong values and creativity. Um, and then we constructed this whole venture that embodies our values in a, in a practical and kind of sustainable way. Like, how do you do conflict resolution? How do you raise money? Like, uh, what do you, like so many different questions that come up along the way. Um, as we confronted those questions and came up with like kind of workable answers, they immediately got shared from our Lumio crew to the other crews around Inspiral and, and kind of accelerated their learning. And then 
the other crews would learn stuff and share it back with us. So we're we're like mutually, yeah, we're 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 mutually supportive in our development. So the proposal was like, don't don't just start a crew on its own. Like, well, obviously you can if you want to, but I don't want to. I want to start in a crew in the company of other crews and that we learn together. Mm. Mm. Um, so would you be able to speak to how you construct or as you describe, crystallize new crews in practice. And in particular, I'm really interested in this reciprocity game that uh, I suppose helps people grow out of some of maybe the dysfunctionalities of individualism and really starts to build a kind of a nourishing um, kind of web of interbeing between people. Hmm. Um, we're, we're, we're in experimental territory at this point, right? So like, um, I have, um, like m my strongest experiences with one crew that I helped to start called Lumio. And then everything else beyond that is speculation. Like I, I haven't started a whole bunch and know where that, how to do it. <laughs> and that's the experiment is like, let's start a bunch and see how to do it well. Um, mm -hmm. but the, this idea with the reciprocity game is that, um, yeah, we should, if we just practice, um, doing each other favors, and coming back to the same circle and keep doing favors for each other, like we, yeah, that might be a useful place to start. So a favor can be um, just just talking from the heart and listening, just being really present for someone and just listening to what's going on for them. Like that can be a, um, a mutually beneficial gift to each other. And, and then it can just deepen and accelerate from there. So you go from just like having a meaningful conversation to, well, well, how can I practically support you? Like, what are you doing? Say you're a change maker. Um, what do you do for income? Where does your money come from? How is there anything I can do to um, help you make a better income for less compromise on your values? Can I make an introduction? Can I um, give you some new way of thinking? Or you know, like these little practical things that that um, make it easier for you to do the work that's most meaningful to you. Um, that's a, another little favor, another little favor. And, and you just, um, the, yeah, the way I outlined it in the reciprocity game is that you can just keep stepping up and playing harder and harder levels. You know, there's, there's one of the hardest levels is called conflict, like where we really upset each other. And then mm. we commit to going through the, the discomfort and the, you know, that horrible thing called growth that, that feels gross mm. while you're doing it. And then you're stoked at the other side. Um, that, yeah, there's this this commitment and this returning to that same circle and showing up and showing up and showing up to each other and saying I'm here and this thing happened and we need to talk about it and I think like you did something wrong and I did something wrong and we have we've both got something to learn here like that um, it's an incredibly bonding experience you know and it's a it's an experience where um, I think that like I as an individual grow and we as a collective grow. And then the far end, like the highest level of the um, reciprocity game that I've played so far, there may be higher levels that I'm looking forward to, but the highest one that I've played is it's just co-ownership, right? It's like, so the software company that we started, Lumio, we could have just pursued a traditional um, kind of venture capital, Silicon Valley startup kind of thing. Um, but we decided to do a different thing, which is called co-ownership. So um, the people who work on the project are the ones who own it. They legally own it. So as one of the founders as more people join the project, like after they've been around for a while and we've got to know them a bit, 
like once they had um yeah demonstrated some willingness to commit we um we extended the invitation to them to say like do you want to be an equal co-owner with us like do you want to join this this circle of ownership and each person that said yes to that question like lowered my stress as a as a as a founder like that i know that this this responsibility this mission um this vision is shared with another person that I have um, less responsibility for the whole and I can just focus on um, what's my strongest gift. And, and that, yeah, I think it's really profound what happens to people when you invite people, invite them into that co-ownership role. Hmm. Um, and I assume that there are like enormous cultural barriers to, to getting to co-ownership in terms of, you know, the individual drive to really reap the rewards of what you've created if, let's say, you've played a very significant role as a founder um, and, you know, like really requiring you to trust in other people that you might have issues with trust. I'm wondering whether either of you could share any personal experiences of difficulties you've had actually transitioning to, you know, co-ownership as a model and uh, co-decision making and, and what that actually means in practice especially for people who aren't familiar with this it just might seem a bit like uh, well i'm just losing control and it all becomes a bit messy when i could just be the the individual that owns it and and ultimately kind of reaps the financial benefit um i can say something to that like i can't recall a particular uh, scenario because I probably have so many that you know I need to go through a big list but I think that um, a key ingredient to that is what we were talking before about changing mindsets and expectations changing the way that you're approaching things and that's the change from the I to the we that is required mm -hmm. once you start you know when you hold something together it's not mine anymore it's ours and, and that takes a lot of internal work and it takes a lot of, as you, as you named it, a lot of trust with the others that you're holding things with. And it takes time to build that trust. So, yeah, I think my recommendation in general on that terms is start with the trust. Start be, with building the sense of us and, and belonging and um, supporting each other. And then you move into the, the co-owning thing. Hmm. Yeah, and just like my own personal reflection of having founded Alter Ego, which has been running these gatherings and it's this media channel that I've very much been the founder and the leader and the figurehead. And I've really, I can, it's quite like a vulnerable thing to share, haven't really ever successfully managed to build a consistent team around it because of the ways in which I've held on to it and struggled to let go and really create a space for people to own it with me and then all the while it's just been very very stressful of of mm -hmm. being the person holding it on my own and feeling this emotional pressure um mm -hmm. so i think a lot of people are yeah like finding themselves in this place of kind of just the exposure of hierarchy and the loneliness of hierarchy mm -hmm. and what i hear from both of you is the relief of when you can actually hold this project with a group of people that you have real emotional intimacy with um, and then you can find your place within that and that's definitely where I am at the moment is like just not wanting to 
be the person in the center, but to find myself as part of a collective where I can just do what I'm good at. Yeah, um, thanks for sharing that. And um, what I've noticed is that point of, you know, the shared leadership point, especially if you've been holding something for a very long time, like, you know, you know how to do things well. You learn how to do how to do things. You know that um, your way is great. And when you start sharing with another person, it takes actually time for that person to also learn how to do it uh, well, but in their own way. So that could be a bit of a, a, a tense moment of being like, I want to share with you this with you, but I also want this to be as great as it has been so far. So it does take a lot of patience as well from the person that has been holding it the longest to let others step in and find their own place and find their own way of doing things. And it, it, I want to illustrate the relation, the relational aspect of it again. Like, so I am, I'm one of these people that is, um, I have lots of different kinds of skills. I'm super energetic. Um, I find it often very easy to, to pick up new skills and just, I have a lot of initiative and ready, I'm ready to go on stuff. And I have a really high standard of quality. So like, um, it's really easy for me to just like take on many different parts of a project and just say, I got this, I got this, I got this. And it took a lot of, um, yeah, like informal coaching from my peers to help me see that like my um, insistence on quality and and like, oh, I, it's just easiest if I do it, just leave it with me. Um, like the fundamental limitations of that, like I've only got um, so many hours in a day that I can deliver on. And if, it, if all these different parts of the project are bottlenecking on me, then it doesn't matter how good my quality is, like the throughput is still going to be low. And it's and I needed to go through this, this phase of learning how to share it out, um, be really clear in my communication about this for me is really super important. These other bits, I'm not so sure. This is how I would do it, but that's just me, you know, like learning how to distinguish between those things. And the way that I learned how to do that was in the company of other co-owners, you know, like um, when, I mean, you think about when we met Ronan, like I um, listened to your podcast um, with, with Daniel Thorson on his show Emerge. And I was just like totally blown away by what you were talking about. And I was like, wow, this Ronan character is doing the most amazing work. I'm so glad someone's doing this. I'm, I'm like, I was so moved and, and excited and delighted with what you were doing. And then towards the end of the podcast, you um, you explained like just how much um, how much personal struggle that you were going through at the same time as doing all this work, and it mm. just made me. That was one of those moments where I just recognized like, wow, okay, this is why this is why I have my congregation. You know, like it's not just the crew; it's actually there's other crews that are having shared experience, and I can go to other founders and say, hey, um, this this shit's going on for me. How did you deal with it? And and get real. Um, really personalized support, you know, really intimate support from people I, that I love and trust who can help me to give me some really like practical advice, but also who can reach in and say, look, Rich, this is actually you being uptight and this is the part you need to let go of, you know? Um, and then also, hey, look, this is a, a good management system or this is a, yeah, a good tool that you can use to help. And, and having that, having both of those was just like, instrumental in my ability to um, develop into this co-owner role. And so, mm. yeah, I just felt moved to like, I wanted to be one of those peers for you. You know, that's why I reached out. 
yeah yeah and thank you and it was really yeah it was really uh even just to be kind of witnessed and to be and for someone to say like i really loved the podcast but what i really heard was that i was like yeah that's the main thing <laughs> that, that i'm struggling with and the thing that it um the thing that it brings up for me like alter ego is all about uh linking you know the personal and the political and like the the role of the the inner work and systems change and it really strikes me that like at the obviously there's lots of tools and processes and both of you and Inspiral and Lumio have prototyped so many amazing processes or at least kind of collated them from the field. Um, and yet I, for me, it strikes me that the heart of this is like really uh, a real commitment to inner work and that so many of um, mm -hmm. to transition this way of being uh, is requires just a lot of psychotherapeutic work. And I kind of I draw that from my own personal experience, like over the last couple of months, I've really just become aware of how much alter ego is Ronan's ego and how much I use the project as a way of validating myself and have lost the element of like what problem I, am I actually solving how, you know in what way is this a platform to be of service and you know you you don't go far down into that inquiry before encountering just a lot of wounds from childhood and a lot of insecurity and a lot of self-esteem issues and I think this is the at least for me the hidden dimension of this shift in organizing is a culture of inner work and um and maybe a recognition that it's really painful and hard you know like growth like real significant growth where you can shift out of these mindsets uh is a serious process um so maybe i just wanted to invite any reflections that uh, both of you have uh of of either personally uh, doing that work or even just seeing it amongst co-owners that you've worked with and 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 maybe giving people a feel for what that's like in practice uh, so i what i can share is yes i definitely agree with that it does take a lot of um inner work and that could be in the form of therapy traditional therapy or any kind of therapy uh, therapeutic approach that people are interested in but also um, and this is why we were talking about the scale before, because there's a lot of that work that is done in relationship, I, I feel, and you can do it in your own crew. Like I feel that through my own crews, I have grown a lot as a person because I get confronted with things, but also I have the space to be vulnerable and share how I'm feeling and have people supporting me on those challenges. The kind of work environments that we're talking about, they're not just the kind of traditional work that you can think of where you come in and you have a role and you just do your tasks and you leave. They're a lot more emotionally involved, um, especially when you're, you know, if you're sharing a business with someone. Um, it's kind of like, in a way, if you think about a relationship, you know, you want to have a baby with someone, you want to you want to really know them, you want to support each other, you want to get into the deeper layers, not just the okay, I'm going to wash the dishes and I'm, I'm going to make the dinner kind of thing. Hmm. So for us, a lot of that work is done together in relationship and in our crews. 
And to give you an example, um, there's this new thing that we're trialing in Inspiro and we're calling it CarePods. And it's basically a crew of us from, from different parts of the network. It's around four or five of us. And we're coming together to support each other um, on our personal development. So we choose the people that we want to be in that pod with, people that we resonate with. Maybe we don't know each other very well, but we feel that there's something there. And we go through, together through different processes for personal development. Like uh, with my pods at the moment, we've been doing this process, um, like a series of sessions on the intentional change theory that is quite interesting. And through that process is that we we hold each other accountable for our own personal development. We have someone that we can bounce ideas with, someone that can call us out when we're mm -hmm. out of line, someone that can bring us back into center as well. So those are the spaces that um, I think that are very important to build. Mm. Rich, have you any uh, reflections to add to that in terms of your own experience of inner work in relation to this kind of space? Yeah. Um, part of the reason that I'm traveling is to understand, like, what is the context that I take for granted at home? You know, um, what are the parts that I just overlook because they're so um, familiar? Um, there's, there's one that's like kind of um, random, but in New Zealand, um, it's extremely common for people from the age of about 18 to about 30 almost all of us live in shared houses. It's like really, really normal that you'd live with like somewhere between four and six adults. Um, and it's not like a, you're not making a point or demonstrating your values in some way. Like that's just how we live because of the architecture and the economics of the, it's like, that's just how we do it. And that has equipped me with like a bunch of skills about how do you, um, yeah, how do you share a resource? How do you share a kitchen? You know, like how do you um, share tasks? And, and, it's very uncommon for one of those shared houses to be run hierarchically. You know, usually it's people just figure it out together. Um, but there's other more subtle contexts as well. So like you could interview um, people at Inspiral and ask them, you know, do you have some kind of mindfulness, yoga, meditation practice? And you would get probably an 80% yes, you know, uh, maybe more. Um, and and there's a reason for that. And it's, it's not, um, it's not encoded into our rules or our identity. And there's not even like, you'd, occasionally you'll see a bit of like uh, at an Inspiral gathering, someone will, will host a little yoga moment or something like that, but it's not like a big part of who we are. And yet it's something that all of us carry with us, like that we know that there is some, um, yeah, there's a lot of work to do on the self um, to, to be a part of this, um, yeah, this different kind of group requires it requires ourselves to show up in a certain kind of way, um, and and in my I've done a little bit of of psychotherapy, not much, um, but you know, like um, a couple of dozen sessions now, and I'm really not sold on it compared to, um, well, compared to there's one thing that came to mind is this like different kinds of plant medicines have been much more effective for me, but also. Um, just generally doing my personal development in the company of others and not just any others, but others that are, that I share some commitment and history with. Um, mm. so like one example in Lumio, um, we, so we've got a bunch of co-owners and we, um, 
especially in the early days, we we started in the early days, everything was done by consensus, everything collective all the time, you know, um, including all of our decisions about money. And so that was a ripe source of conflict because everyone has different experiences and values about money. And it's just a really easy thing to get upset about. And um, one of the practices that we did, I mean, so there's a, there's a meta practice, which is we go on retreat. So um, while we were in the first few years, we would go away together every six months um, for three or four days with just our team, no one else. And, and really go deep on some stuff, go deep on some bonding, but also, um, reach into the roots of like what's causing us tension, what's difficult for us. And one of the, um, I, I really distinctly remember there was one dialogue that we had on one of our retreats, which was about money. And um, uh, Vivian, who's one of our co-founders, who's just phenomenal, like just an amazing, amazing mentor and elder, um, she held this circle about money and, and invited everyone, you know, anyone who wanted to, to tell their story of money. Just go back as far as you want to go and tell us everything in your life that you remember about money. And mm. we went around and we heard from everyone. And as you can probably imagine, like there was a lot of grief in that circle. There was a lot of shame. And um, and it was like, every, it's, to me, it seemed like everyone had a great deal of shame, whether it was, um, yeah, like me, if you grew up where knowing that your parents didn't have enough money and were really struggling just to make ends meet and like, what is that? Um, how, how that impacted my sense of um, value and worth and, and that sort of thing. Or someone else who was raised with much more privilege and um, feels like they weren't uh, entitled to it somehow, right? They, they got this unfair advantage and they feel ashamed about that. Like that just across the board, all of us were carrying these really negative stories about money. And then you've got that kind of psychology operating and then you go mm. and you look at the budget and you're trying to decide about office furniture and stationery and you're not actually... You know, like you think you're talking about the office furniture, but actually you're talking about like your relationship with your dad and like that horrible thing that happened when you were a kid and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, so to have the dialogue circle together, it really like was just such a noticeable transition where a, a bunch of us let go of a bunch of our stuff about money and mm. um, we're much more equipped to just think, yeah, like we weren't overcome by emotion when we had to make a decision about how to spend our collective finances we were able to just be present and rational and like make the choices that made sense. Um, and yeah, I, I just know that my personality or whatever is much better suited to doing that kind of work in a small group than um, doing it with some professional therapist who's keeping me at arm's length. Yeah. And I suppose like ideally that you would take these tools into your own hands and and, uh, you know, like co-counseling is a very good example of how a crew can, you know, take on some of the tools and practices of a therapist, but be able to bring that into, you know, an everyday context. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I just wanted to mention one particular modality of therapy because you, you talked a lot in the article about the network self, that even though the self is kind of the, the smallest unit, that within the self there are we have many different selves and that family systems therapy you know speaks about these different parts of us uh that have their own you know belief systems and worldviews and kind of consciousness and their selves that lives inside us and i loved at the end 
uh, of the article when you said, you know, when you finished writing it, there was a confident part of you that was really proud of yourself and the thinking. And then you paused for a moment and then more timid uh, selves inside you started to question yourself. And I think it was like a, a lovely kind of moment of uh, kind of inviting people into your inner world. Um, and obviously part of the family systems work is to uh, recover exiled parts of yourself, often from childhood that have been, you know, either not protected, not loved in the way they needed to be loved. They've been humiliated. And in a way, as long as they're in exile, they're running the show. And it sounds like as part of this organizational process is a deep healing process of kind of retrieving aspects of ourselves uh, and becoming more integrated so that the decisions that we make as a crew or as a congregation are coming from us in this present moment in time as you know a, a somewhat integrated adult as opposed to the part of us that um you know has had a difficult relationship with money from childhood so yeah again i'm just um noticing the strong kind of personal and cultural renewal that is taking place in in the process of organizing, in the process of creating a product. And it feels like a very, yeah, just very, very integrated. Um, yeah, so I really rate that. Um, <laughs> and also there's a part of me that can imagine people who are un unacquainted with this world thinking, God, that just sounds like a lot of emotional work. And <laughs> what is where where is the virtue of professional distance where you can just kind of you know, come like this is something that I've found is that, you know, working with friends in particular is on one level so joyful because, you know, you're you really vibe with each other. And then at the same time, um, it's very difficult to draw a boundary around your work and your life and, you know, power dynamics that might come up or just difficulties. So maybe I'd just be curious to get any thoughts that you have on is is there a place for professional distance in, in this um kind of brave new world of integrating emotional and economic intimacy uh and solidarity um and yeah and, and actually and, and and do you have any thoughts about working with close friends i am a very big believer in boundaries i think i'm um he's pretty, very good at it as well yeah i'm pretty good at boundaries um but professional distance seems like a really arbitrary line to draw um, and yeah, I'm I, like, I'm not interested in convincing someone. Like if they have a way of working where they like to just like, um, yeah, keep people at arm's length or something like, awesome, go for it. Um, but we keep encountering people who are craving something different and, and we're speaking to them. And so like Nati and I, are, um, I, I say we're partners in work and in love, you know, like we're, we're lovers as well as co-owners of a business. And I don't want to talk about the business when we're in bed, you know, like that's, that's, um, that's a boundary um, that is really easy to uphold. And, and even, you know, like just what time of day it is or what day of the week it is, like there's a boundary there about what kind of conversations we're going to have and what kind of mode we're in. And, mm. and if I feel like, um, yeah, if I feel like Nutty is like encroaching on that boundary, I'll let her know, like, hey, I'm not available to talk about that thing right now because as soon as you talk about that work-related thing, my brain just like, it boots up, you know, and then it's it's all 
running at this high frequency for the next couple of hours and I'm actually in winding down mode. And if mm. you want to like connect and be um, present and tender with each other, I'm up for that, but I'm not up for getting my brain into gear, you know, like that's not what's going on here. Mm. Um, um, but yeah, it's not, it's not like, Oh, we work together. Therefore we don't share emotion together. Like the, <laughs> the, the emotions always there, you know? Mm. Um, and, and like you say, like you can try and exile it, but then it's still going to run the show. Mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. to be honest, like um, personally, when I think about, yeah, this um, Charles Einstein idea, the most beautiful world our heart knows is possible, when I think about what that looks like to me, it's not a place where work is separated from my life and I have two different ways of being in one place or in the other. It's a place where I'm putting my passion and my energy into doing something for the collective good that brings me joy and is done with others that, um, that are coming from the same place. So for me, that division, yeah, I don't really see it in, in a different kind of future, personally. But yeah, also it is very important, as you said, like there are power dynamics that can play, there's issues with boundaries, because let's face it, like we're all learning how to do this. It's not it's not an easy, natural thing for all of us as, as you know, as a whole, we're all learning new ways of being with each other. So that requires time and and lessons often also come through bruises and we need to go through them and understand that, you know, oops okay, we kind of uh, hit ourselves against that wall. Maybe let's try this other path instead mm-hmm. and learn and learn through it. So I think one particular thing that we normally te- tend to tell a lot of people and a lot of groups is be explicit, be really explicit about your norms, be explicit about your boundaries, be explicit about your power dynamics, about what you see and about how do you want to be together. That's that's the core question. Like, how do we want to be together? How do we want to relate to each other? What are the things that each of us need in order to collaborate together? Mm. Yeah, yeah. That's really. And I know we, I know we made it sound like a lot of yeah, a lot of therapy. But there's also a lot of really simple, fun, informal stuff that's happening all the time. You know, like I'm thinking about my friend. Lucas, who's um, from Inspiral, and he's one of these people that I really look up to as someone who knows how to integrate the different parts of themselves, and he just holds himself with compassion all the time, and mm. he, just in conversation, you'll just pick it up, like he's got a distinctive way of expressing himself, like not, um, yeah, it's not like, oh, I'm really depressed, it's like, at the moment, I'm experiencing some feelings of depression, or, you know, like just a subtle shift that's, that's mm. like, not such a not such a strong identification with this moment this this moment that he's feeling but like oh i know that i've got this depressive feeling at the moment and i'm just going to um sit with myself and not 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 beat myself up too much and like just having that as a person around to to copy and mimic like i feel like i've learned so much from those really um simple small interactions like that hmm. yeah and it it does sound like there's a lot of work um a lot of personal work and a lot of emotional work and to be honest, there there is, especially at the beginning or especially as you're transitioning. But it gets up to a point where, you know, it's just once you once you absorb that that knowledge and that new way of being, it just it's easy. It's just like a daily it's like the daily things, like yeah. 
Um, so I'm curious to uh, ask about the, towards the end of the article, you speak about, I suppose, the wider systemic impact of this model uh, of organizing. Um, and, uh, and in particular, how you feel that um, it doesn't change the world by appealing to people to be good or to be better, but that actually it outcompetes um, the prevailing system. And in this case, you know, you have a gig economy where uh, people really aren't often meeting or finding it difficult to, to manage the trade-off between doing meaningful work, having financial stability and experiencing belonging within groups. Um, and I was just hoping that both of you uh, or one of you could just speak to how you feel that this model um, uh, is, is just better at, at, at delivering that um, meaning, stability and belonging, these core needs um, uh, for, for, that all people have. Um, I think the the driver underneath this is like, it's one thing to convince someone um, like, ah, this is a good thing to do. Um, but to really engage, at least for me, to really engage my will, it needs to, it needs to deliver better results. Like, mm. um, yeah, I don't, I don't get much personal benefit from recycling. So it really takes a lot of energy to like actually take the trouble to sort my recycling out properly and deal with it, you know? Um, and and there's a whole bunch of other things that I should be doing, but I just don't because I don't see the res I don't see the return. Like it's it falls outside of my awareness, and so I don't get that um, that constant um, yeah encouragement. Um, and and I certainly yeah I certainly didn't come at Lumio or at Inspiral with this idea like ah you know what is the right thing to do? How are we supposed to be? It was like I have these needs, you know, I have these needs and. I have a very vague ambition for how the world should be. Um, is there any way to get those needs met? Um, and and what I found was like, oh, there's a whole bunch of freelancers that are supporting each other. Um, you know, like practical support. How about we make our own co-working space that's super cheap and really lovely, and everyone gives each other's hugs and cups of tea. Like, that's good. You know, um, that was because I needed a place to work. You know, it wasn't because um, of my anti-capitalist narrative. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, the question of like, does this way of working outperform, um, I'm, I'm sort of on the fence about it because, uh, it's like, what are you measuring against on the one hand? Um, like what are the, what are the outcomes that you're trying to deliver? If the, if, if you're measuring against like economic growth or something, then maybe not so much, but, um, on the other hand, like there's this, um, very influential study done by Google. They called it Project Aristotle, where they tried to understand, like across all of their thousands of teams that work at Google, what was the what did the good ones have in common? Like the super productive ones, what was what was it that they were so why were they so good? And the number one factor that they found they had in common was this thing called psychological safety. That everyone in the team felt like um, they could show up as themselves, they could suggest ideas and be heard. They could disagree with each other and still, you know, like feel like their position in the group wasn't threatened. Um, that, yeah, this is like validated by uh, some of, you know, like the sort of captains of industry know that 
um, getting people into a state where they can be more fully themselves. They are going to be more productive and more efficient and more creative and all that. So um, then the question is, well, how do you produce psychological safety? And for me, the only way I know how is through intimacy, you know? Yeah. And, and it's an intimacy that you want to um, step into piece by piece and by mutual and enthusiastic consent. And it might start with, with just a little bit of like, hey, yeah, I'm feeling really depressed today and I don't want to go to that meeting. And it might graduate to like, hey, I've got this childhood issue about money and um, I want to talk with some colleagues about your issues with money so I feel less weird about it, <laughs> you know? Mm. Mm. Um, I'm just mindful of our time and would love to um, ask what, so having, you know, spent the last couple of years developing these ideas and now putting it into a formal proposal, what's next and how do you plan uh, to, I suppose, bring this idea into, uh, bring this idea to life in a practical way? Hmm. When I wrote the blog post, I had a really clear intention, which was, um, I want to write out my plan for the next couple of years of work and put it in public so that I feel really confident in the strategy, like that I've, um, that, yeah, I and we have thought through all the different issues and that this is actually a, a, a good strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, that was the intention of writing. And then it's interesting to discover that the intention after publishing is like, oh, it's not just about this one thing that we're doing. Um, it's actually about, um, this wider thing, this, this network of congregations that seems to exist and seems to be emerging and um, wanting to meet each other and learn from each other. So I, there's a tension between that small scale and the large scale. At the small scale, Nati and I are going to just start bringing people together um, into circles and develop some of that emotional intimacy and see if we can get to some economic intimacy. At the large scale, um, I know for myself, I'm really going to focus on um, on writing, like on um, putting into words uh, what are the practices that really make a difference. That that and and it's really nuanced work. Like uh, there's a real tension between the written word and the lived experience of it, and and I'm putting my focus on um, capturing some of this almost magical quality into words that, that transcend context. Mm. Um, so, so I'm, I'm interested in this, this co-development of different congregations, but I'm going to try and not get too obsessed with the large scale abstraction and stay with the small scale with Nati. Mm. Yeah. Basically we're going to put it more into practice. Okay. And that would mean like, like hosting, Kind of gatherings for would-be crews in in different areas of work or how how would you yeah what's your kind of design criteria for bringing groups together to to model this this theory yeah so basically um this year so we're now in new zealand right we spend our new zealand summer here and then we go into europe for um spring summer and autumn there to do mm-hmm. a bunch of our work so while we are in Europe, our idea is to bring together um, a lot of the people that we have met so far and that we will love to have in our congregation and that we know they're looking for um, a sense of belonging to a crew in a congregation as well. Mm-hmm. And 
um, we're probably going to have a gathering at some point in Europe and try to see if if that gathering turns into a congregation and if that congregation turns into a bunch of different crews around mm. Europe that are, are trying it as well. That sounds great. <laughs> I'm so glad that you're coming back to Europe. <laughs> not <laughs> Amazing. Okay. Um, so we're just over the hour mark. I was wondering whether uh, for either of you, is there any part of the thinking that we haven't touched yet or anything that just that has arisen that you feel called just to speak to a little bit just while we have time together? Um, well, I have, I'm sitting with this question and I don't even really know how to form the question yet. It's so um, emergent. But like from having published this post looking for feedback and then having gotten a lot of feedback, um, one of the reflections that's come back that I'm most present with and looking forward to develop my thinking on is about, it's kind of about ownership. Like, um, like I said, this balance between I and we. So the, the blog is written by me, you know, it's, I'm the author and I'm very comfortable claiming that. Like I, I have a bunch of skills of writing and I have an audience that's um, gathered around the writing that I do and that's cool. Um, but the ideas are not mine, you know, and the action's not mine. Like the, the, the whole plan um, is Nati and me talking with each other for two years, you know, and we're not just talking with each other. We're talking with all these other people that are also navigating through the same field and um and each of those conversations are yeah the 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 really the the really meaningful conversations their imprint is on that proposal you know like it's there and i and i can point to the specific phrases that came from specific people Mm. so i'm 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 in this question of like how to yeah how to do co-ownership of this micro solidarity hashtag you know um, that's not a free for all, um, that has a high standard of quality because I think the stuff is so nuanced. Like there's a ton of stuff on the web already about like, yeah, different kinds of therapy and different kinds of theories of change and all this sort of stuff. Like, uh, I think there is something distinctive in, in, in the nuance. And that means like we need some kind of quality control, but I just am super uncomfortable with the idea of me being the inventor or the founder of it because it's just it's just doesn't it's just not realistic it doesn't resemble reality so yeah it's very easy for me to write as a me and i'm not quite sure how how to graduate into a we um so that's yeah that's just kind of a question that's that's hanging in front of me and nati do you have any reflections on that um, in um, terms of being you know like a, a primary contributor to these ideas and working closely with rich yeah, so basically, you know, Rich is very good with words and I'm not that good with written words. I'm I'm more of a relational person, so I work better in dialogue. So that's the space where we build our ideas, bunch of our ideas, even even for our work and our workshops and things. They all come from there. Um, but yeah, he's better at at framing them into a blog post. He spent a lot of years training for that. And um, I'm trying to do my piece as well, but at the same time, it's like I also know my strength and I know my I know my weaknesses. So I'm happy to play to my strengths and let him play to his. That's mm-hmm. also part of um, shared leadership. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to add a piece about the context of all this 
like a bunch of the things that we heard in Europe. So a part of the assumptions uh, that Rich mentioned a little bit before about where we come from and what is our, you know, what is our congregation, what is inspiral for us and and that sense of belonging and work and um, personal development that we have done in in our crews. And we go to Europe with those assumptions that, oh, yeah, this must be normal. This is what people probably do with their own groups and everyone should probably has one of these. And we encounter a lot of people there when we talked about these things that for us, you know, for us seem so normal. Everyone was like, whoa, that's amazing. I would love to have that. Mm. Um, it sounds like a dream. You know, like we kept on hearing these things. It's like, oh, this is not that common here. Even though there's so many people, the sense of belonging to a smaller group of people that has your back and that you're mm. doing your meaningful work with is not spread out. So part of um, us wanting to to find our congregation and, and help crews in Europe is part of as well um, seeing if a bunch of what we learned here, we can replicate it over there and if we can bring some of those lessons and those ways of being. Mm. Amazing, amazing. I mean, I just think there's so much incredible thinking and practice to to bring. Um, and yeah, I, I, in a way, I suppose alter ego, at least at a gathering, was unique, at least for its time when it started a couple of years ago in really emphasizing inner work and transformational process, which is quite new and even taboo for lots of people even to kind of talk about mm -hmm. it. So I think that the space is really ripe for this kind of thinking. So again, I just say that like I'm super excited that you're coming back to us in the spring and in the summer and i think there's like just a lot of really really good work to be done and i think it was you ronan in that podcast with daniel that mentioned all the empty churches across europe and like what might we do with those empty churches mm -hmm. and what better use of a church than to put a congregation in it yes yes i really 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 like that idea i really like that idea okay i'm feeling very excited about yeah how how this um how this idea can be filled out you know that even just this idea of micro solidarity weaving together emotional and economic solidarity how if people are listening to this or you know if people have read your article and are now following up with hearing both of your voices how how can they be a part of this is it just a matter of getting in touch, giving unsolicited feedback. I don't know. I'm just uh, curious for if anyone is listening right now and wants to somehow get involved, what, what are, yeah. would you recommend? Um, I'm going to, I'm going to launch a website pretty soon um, that helps to collate. Um, yeah. A bunch of resources and a bunch of these kind of conversations that are happening um, as a starting place for people to um, yeah, get up to speed with the ideas and, and to sort of announce their presence as well. Um, I think the simplest thing is just like this word micro solidarity. Um, I, I, I checked that out on Google beforehand and like, it's pretty open territory. Like, um, if you, yeah, if you look on Twitter for micro solidarity as a hashtag, like you'll find a couple of people talking about it. Like, I think if you're interested in this thing, just start using the hashtag on whatever platform you're on and start having the conversations with your local communities and we'll find each other. Like hashtags are really good at that. Um, yeah. and yeah, in the next couple of weeks, there'll be a website that has practical resources. Right. 
trust the hashtag. Okay, thank you both so much uh, for taking the time to talk to me. Um, been really, really lovely. And I just want to say, I just have like huge respect for your thoughtfulness and how you are like, I suppose, being the thing and, and, and modeling what you think the new human and the new ways we should work together and sharing it with everyone. So I just want to say, yeah, thank you so much. And uh, just looking forward to seeing where our conversation leads and to whoever is listening, what it, what it means for them. So thank you so much. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you, Ronan. I'm full of love for what you're doing as well. I look forward to having more time to collaborate. Yeah, me too. Okay, <laughs> let's stop it there.